Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a brand-new 2018 episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I am coming to you from an undisclosed location in New Jersey. Uh, at another undisclosed no- location in the woods is David Sanger, further north. Further south, we have, in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, Rosa Brooks. And across the ocean, in her <laughs> soon-to-be new home, we have Corey Shockey in London, uh, of course, Corey is moving to London, as you've heard on this episode, on this podcast. Uh, and for all of us, California is now dead to us um, because our hearts are, are with Corey wherever she is. Um, guys, did you have a good New Year's? Well, David, it was really, really cold up here in Vermont on New Year's Eve. It was 14 below. Outside the cabin. That sounds terrible. I hope you didn't like lick a fire hydrant or do anything <laughs> foolish. I, as New if, York Times reporters are known to do. Some, known as to they do. sometimes will do. Yeah. Fortunately, we are so far out in the woods that there are no fire hydrants to lick. Ah. Well, it's, it's cozy here in the Ministry of Snark, but it's a little lonely here on New Year's Day 2018. It's just me and Ian, our producer. All alone, and if if things if it gets cold, we're just going to burn the insulation and the sound recording equipment. <laughs> well, that's since the Ministry of Snark is very up to date, and all the sound recording equipment is made out of wood, <laughs> you should be fine. Um, it was London you were actually, was terrific on New Year's. Fireworks going off all over the place. The Californian in me was quite shocked that it appears like. Every little neighborhood gets to do its own fireworks show. Um, and why are they not worried about the great fire ravaging right, this burning their city, city down. to the ground? I think they've been there and done that. Yeah, it's happened already. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't prevent it happening again. See, this is the problem. People always think history tells us what will happen in the future. And it only tells us that it happened in the past. And nobody ever uh, expects the Spanish Inquisition. I'm so glad there was a reference to that. And I I feel this whole thing is getting a little more Anglophone with every minute. And Ed Luce, who was to have joined us, is somewhere on an airplane. And we'll have him in next week to explain all of that. I think it's only... You know, Ed, in the next next, uh, set of of podcasts, has volunteered to give Corey British accent lessons. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I so do not want them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I'm perfectly happy with my soft, round American consonants. But but remember, and I think they've invited you over there, Corey, because they're looking forward to your 19th century references (laughs) forward. (laughs) David, you'll remember. David, you are suggesting that I have. Uh, been dispelled from my own country because nobody outside the deep state radio nerds wants to hear it again? No, no. I'm saying that the British (laughs) are among the few people in the world who would look at your references to antiquity and say, there's a kindred spirit. You know, the the good old days, 1815. I remember it well. The Battle of Waterloo. Well, David, here's my prediction for, for 2018, that Corey Shake, who used to say, David, you're exactly right, will now respond with a simple, quite. (laughs) 
I was informed. I don't know if this is true or if, or if my British friends were just messing with me. But when I lived in, in England years ago, I was told that quite actually means not really at all. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it means the reverse of what it should mean. As does rather. Wow. It sounds very yeah. complicated. Here in New Jersey, well, I'm not going to get into what we, we use We say, say what that, we mean and we mean what we say. Yeah, yeah. And, and almost always with old Anglicisms. Um, <laughs> as we look back on 2017, um, Rosa, what do you think we're going to remember the year for? I've already completely repressed 2017. I, I don't remember a thing. It's deeply buried, and it's it's very painful, and I don't want to dig it up. Do you know where to find your car keys? Yes, yes. I've kept my car keys. That's pretty much the only thing I'm retaining from 2017 is my from car 2017. keys. From 2017. David, do you have any recollection prior to yesterday? You know, I barely have recollections of yesterday, <laughs> but um, but if um, it was quite a party at the, with yeah, the cows, you know, out <laughs> here with the, the cows and and you know uh, all the Vermont farmers. Um, no, the um, I think it's going to be regarded uh, remembered for two or three big things. The first is the abdication of an American role in many of the issues we've discussed in um, last year's uh, Deep State Radio, um, uh, all of which are being preserved, all those recordings are being preserved deep in Rosa's bunker in case there's some kind of nuclear exchange in 2018 and there's no way to recall what we said back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're in uh, a cardboard but, box in my basement with my old cassette tapes yeah, from David, college. you know, when you use the term abdication, I get the impression you've been reading Richard Haas, who was writing <laughs> in The Atlantic about abdication and is now in one of those fierce wonk battles with Evan Osnos, who's talking about retreat. Yeah, no, uh, as, I actually, as, as if these things meant something differently, right? Well, yeah, I, I'm closer to the abdication, and Richard and I have talked about this a fair bit. And the reason that I'm closer to that phrase is that it um, it suggests that the next American president come along could try to reassert the American role. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have lost ground to the Chinese, to others along the way. But I think abdication is just the right word because there was nothing that forced us to do this, nothing that forced us to get out of the Paris Accord, nothing that forced us to walk backwards from the Iran nuclear agreement, nothing that forced us uh, to... Um, uh, go out and and suggest in in some way or another that NAFTA was doing uh, way more harm than good. Uh, there were all kinds of ways to go build on these agreements and change them and alter them, and certainly NAFTA was in need of that. But abdication means that you voluntarily decide that you're going to step back from all of this, and. Uh, that may be in part because we have an administration that got caught up in its own campaign rhetoric, and you may see that reverse over the next few years. But so far, we haven't seen any evidence of that. Wait, that was just number one. You said there were two things right. 2017 there were, were There were two for. things. So the second thing we're, we're going to be remembered for, uh, I think, is that the president has coarsened the way we discuss the powers of the presidency itself. And that goes to his declarations that uh, he can do by fiat things that we have come to expect presidents were limited in their ability to go do. And you see this the most, really, in just the way he talks about dealing with the Department of Justice, uh, where he you know, openly expressed his disdain for the thought that the president isn't allowed to turn on and turn off investigations. Well, you know, I want to come back to this in a second and 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 come back to the very good or very interesting Peter Baker article on on on, on redefining the presidency. But I do want to go to Corey uh, from your perspective over there on the other side of the ocean. When you look back at 2017, what do you see? I think 2017 is going to be remembered as an enormously consequential year, a year in which Americans 
feel both so safe and so aggrieved that with the existing uh, order, the existing bargain, the existing uh, role America has in the world, that they elect the most reckless president since Andrew Jackson. I think it will be remembered as a year in which Americans had grown so lazy that we permitted Russia to undermine the integrity of our elections and overtly interfere in our democratic processes. And then, uh, you know, bickered amongst ourselves about whether or not to do anything to fix it. I think it will be remembered as a year where uh, other countries in the world had genuine reason to fear whether the United States was actually the most disruptive state in the international order, the one likeliest to destroy the liberal order we ourselves created and of which we have been an enormous beneficiary. I think it would be remembered as a year where Americans forgot that trade enriches us and undergirds our alliance relationships in ways that benefit our security as well as benefit our economy. Two other things I think it will be remembered for. The time when all of those things began to be recognized and rectified by the American people, by, by beginning once again to realize that uh, we can fix our problems we just need to fix our problems and stop expecting the government to do it. Stop expecting a savior on a white horse to do it. We need to roll our sleeves up, hold hands across our communities and do what's good for our country again. Corey, and that that was very impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. You can here's tell who wasn't tip. drinking during New Year's Eve. Yeah. Here's, here's a safety tip for all of those new deep state listeners. That's not a compliment when Rosa says it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was thinking that you you definitely have have earned your tiara of optimism, <laughs> because of yes. course, and, and and I'm about to earn my uh, thorny crown of entropy once again because I, I I agree with the diagnosis of what the year was like, but not so much uh, that the, the the second part of what you were saying, Corey. I I think I think we could call 2017 the, the year America just went off the rails entirely. We went off the rails in foreign policy. We have a a vicious cannibalistic government going off the rails in terms of domestic policy. Uh, Great we, phrasing, um, but but my fear, and and this is a, and, and I hope I hope I am wrong about this. I desperately hope I'm wrong about this. I was actually thinking about this um, driving over to to the Ministry of Snark with my 2017 Memorial car keys. I, I was thinking, you know, we are <laughs> we are I, wondering if the possibility of actual civil insurrection in this country is 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 just too crazy, because it it feels it's increasingly feeling a little bit like the Trump administration is at war with much of America, um, and things are just nasty. I, I I'm I. Wish I could share your optimism that 2017 was also the year when we all woke up and thought, oh, goodness, let, let's hold hands across the country. Um, I don't see a whole lot of holding hands. I see a deepening of divisions, uh, a, you know, a hardening of ideological lines, an enormous growth in hostility and mistrust, uh, a rise of extremist groups, particularly on the right, a handful on the left as well. Um, and a, you know, mutual unwillingness to to give credence to the idea that people who don't see everything the way we see it uh, could possibly have anything to say to us, and and that I find that very frightening. I mean, I I actually think far more likely. And again, as I said, I I, I really want to be wrong. Um, and and if if in ten years we have our ten year anniversary. Anniversary of New Year's 2018 Deep State Radio podcast. You know, Corey, I, I hope you will say to me, Rose, I knew you were wrong, and you were, and I'll say, you're, I'm so glad I was wrong. But but my my fear is that this is it. You have to let 
What I'm going to say is, Rosa, you have to let me take a picture of you wearing the tiara <laughs> of optimism. Even yeah, I will. I will. Our acquaintance, you have refused. I will. But but I, I fear that, you know, and I keep trying to figure out what, what other country at what moment in history is the best metaphor of this. You know, we're always looking for, you know, is it the decline of the Roman Empire? Or is it, you know... Uh, is it Venezuela? <laughs> is it, you know, are we Canada? <laughs> you know, um, but I, I fear that we're sort of somewhere between, you know, uh, uh, Constantinople sacked by, about to be sacked by the barbarians and, and Venezuela. Um, and we just don't know it yet. We're like those cartoon characters, you know, Wiley E. Coyote, who, who goes over the cliff and sort of keeps running. Uh, and then he looks down. That's a pretty and, good analogy. So that's well, my fear. Look, you know, I, first of all, I think it's quite interesting, uh, just from a point of view of the English language, that David's response to Corey's uh, vision was, it's obvious she hasn't been drinking. And the first thing I was thinking, <laughs> listening to Rosa, was that she hasn't been drinking enough, um, <laughs> or, or that we should all start drinking more. Um, but but I do have an answer for your question, Rosa. And, the, and what was the, my which, question? Well, you asked which. What is the analogy? What is oh, right, the that question. Analogy Thank you. From the past, and and I think the answer is Abdallah Bukharam, um, which what? <laughs> as you know, Abdallah Bukharam was the president of Ecuador from August 1996 to oh, I, to I totally knew that. I totally knew that. It was at the tip you, of my tongue. You knew that. And you also yeah. knew that his nickname was El Loco um, and that his preparation for becoming the president of Ecuador was, among other things, uh, that he, he had been a lawyer, but he, he'd also been a, a singer. He liked to sing a lot. So and, do we. That's very similar and, to us. Very similar. and But the point is, he was a short-lived president who did a terrible job, and it was readily apparent very quickly that he did a terrible job. And this brings me, David, to a question for you, because I was <laughs> reading Peter Baker's um, uh, piece on the Trump presidency, and it had this kind of fine New York Times equality about it, and it was treating the presidency <laughs> in a very sort of serious way, and he's redefining the presidency and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, what the <laughs> fuck? This guy's not redefining the presidency. This is an he's idiot. He's trashing the presidency. stumbled into this job. He is, you know, I mean, you know, want to know what I think of? A year ago today, you know what was true? Barack Obama was president of the United States. And in a very short hard, period, hard to remember that given how busy a year was, isn't it? Well, that's right. <laughs> but the but the point is, you know, for fully three weeks of the year, America functioned more or less as it did. We debated Obama, and you know, we noted what a lousy foreign policy president he was, and what a pretty good domestic policy president he was. But but it was a fairly normal debate. And then this clown, this evil clown sort of strolls into the White House, doesn't know anything about it. He's not redefining anything. He doesn't have a doctrine. He doesn't he doesn't have a vision of the presidency. He doesn't have anything. He, he accidentally stumbled into this office um, and he's been running around like a bull in a china shop, knocking things over. And, and uh, everybody on the outside whose job is normally to discuss these things in, in muted tones is discussing them like he had a plan. And he doesn't have a plan. He's he's completely ill-suited for this job. And soon, I think sooner than some of you may, but, but soon he's just going to be gone and we're going to go, whoops, that was a terrible mistake. Well, um, David, if you think that American presidents come in and then leave and leave no impact, then I would agree with you. No, no, I, have, you have, that's not I what can I give you about 15 of them. <laughs> right. And 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 I can not, I can. That's not what I said, though. But go on. I, I can I can I can <laughs> go on I can name, go on and distort his few, argument, David. Go ahead. I can name a few of. Them. Hey, listen. <laughs> what would a new year be if you didn't get the opportunity to distort Rothkoff's <laughs> early arguments here? Okay. So, um, because because the su the suggestion when when Peter said you know redefine, most presidents try to go redefine the presidency. Not all of them succeed, okay? Like Washington did a pretty good job of this. Lincoln did a pretty good job of this. FDR did a pretty good job of this. We're not sure yet 
whether Barack Obama did anything that was going to be what we would call a lasting redefinition of the presidency uh, in the way that he acted, certainly his election uh, wildly redefined uh, who could become president and how the United States would would deal with that. And Trump, of course, as we've many times said many times, uh, was a reaction by a portion of the population uh, to to Obama. But I think the big question raised in Peter's piece and in many others that we've read at the end of the year is, is anything that Trump is doing lasting or not? And the answer to that depends on whether you view Donald Trump as the instigator of all of this or merely the symptom of a movement within the United States to which he happened to have spectacularly good timing to seize upon. And if you think that it's part of a, of a reaction to globalization, to any of a number of other forces, to moral changes in the country, to immigration and the changes in the population, then you might say that, that Donald Trump is at the beginning edge of some longer lasting change. If you believe that, in fact, he'll be cast out and forgotten after four years or earlier if if the dreams of some of the resistance come true, then uh, you'd say this will just be a blip in American history. Corey, please tell us what the answer to that is. Uh, well, first, I would like to give you the answer to the question of the number of American presidents who have had no <laughs> impact. Uh, shall we start with John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, how do you feel yeah, about McKinley? Wait a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna take our I'm gonna argue with the Millard Fillmore one here for a bit. <laughs> and what uh, about I my was, neighbor Vermonter Calvin Coolidge? What would you say about you know, him? I was he gave us some good lines. But I was prepared to carry it forward all the way to the present. So I I am with David Rothkopf on this one rather than David Sanger. I do think that Peter Baker, an outstanding analyst, journalist, and, and um, writer of a really interesting article, Chronicle of Many Presidencies, I actually think he is uh, dramatizing Trump's effect and it will be much more transient for several reasons. The first is because I think people are gonna get exhausted of this sideshow. And, and I do honestly believe that one of the reasons democracy is the superior form of government is that people very quickly start to demand third grade reading rates and safe sewers. Anywhere in the world you hold elections, sooner or later, uh, and it tends to be sooner. And I, I'm already exhausted with the president's nonsense, and I actually even think a lot of other people are too. The second reason I think it's going to be temporary is because uh, I think a Republican, my political party, has so failed the fundamental moral challenge of dealing with President Trump, that the 2018 elections are going to be a bloodbath. I think independents aren't going to vote for Republicans. I think a lot of Democrats who are sparkly and have um, ideas about how to solve problems are going to look a lot more attractive. And, and that's even without tying them to the big national disgrace of the president. So I think Dems are going to compete for every district. They're going to compete with people who look who sound a lot less like Bernie Sanders and a lot more um, sparkly than that. The third reason that I think um, it's not going to go on, and Rosa, I'm sorry, the third reason isn't nuclear apocalypse. Otherwise, I could take the your um, thorny crown from you. I think the third reason is that Trump policies, um, especially his foreign policies, are going to be attenuated in 2018 increasingly uh, by reality, by economic demands, right? Like, uh, how are we going to get a con 
get past a continuing resolution in three weeks. Um, president doesn't have a clue about that. Something has to give, and it's most likely uh, going to be the courts and economics reigning in the president's sideshow. I assume, Rosa, that what you were going to say was that Corey was smart to bring up Millard Fillmore because as the last Whig president, he offers a parallel to the future of the modern Republican Party. Is that is that? Okay, I heard you guys Googling. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of saying something like that, David. I, I, I seed, I completely seed obscure U.S. presidents and their non-existent legacies to Corey. You know, just if, if I may throw in a, 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 on that, one of the things that went with 2017 was the last living survivor of the 19th century, um, which ah. I found kind of very, you know, thought provoking moment that since from the end of 1799 until 2017, there was always someone alive on the planet who'd been born in the 19th century. And there were a number of articles that noted what a watershed this was, and none of them recognized that Corey is still with us. <laughs> <laughs> but eternally sparkly. But eternally. <laughs> I'd curtsy you my thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, the effect of the tiara of optimism on your telomeres and mitochondria is amazing, apparently. You, live for, you can live forever. Um, but I do think this is a question. I mean, I think in, in some respects, the biggest question as far as America's role in the world and America goes is, is 2017 an aberration because this nutjob maniac is president for a brief period of time, even if he's president for four years, that he is an aberration or he's a He's significant of something else. And, and you know, David hinted at this, that there is a movement or that he's a symptom of something in America that's broader as opposed to an accident of history. And I'm just wondering, where do you come out on this, Rose? So, David, David let, me, uh, let me defend my statement one more time. Since, since for the first, for the first <laughs> David, you're exactly right of 2018, Corey has sided with Rothkoff over Sanger. <laughs> It's a very um, good year. Let's move on to 2019 right away. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the answer to your question about uh, whether he's considered a blip in history or not really hinges on the question of did that grouping that elected him a, a mix of you know the 30, 35 percent of sort of hardcore Trumpers in the electorate and the independents who are now. Uh, as as Rosa and Corey have pointed out, you know, uh, uh, fleeing for their lives, um, whether or not they um, turn out to be a continuing force in American elections, or whether this turns out to be sort of a dying gasp election, and there are a lot of Democrats running around saying, "Oh, this was a dying gasp election, and the people who elected Donald Trump will barely live long enough to." Um, get around to elect him a second time. And while that may be right, uh, and while I think a lot of independents are certainly fleeing him, I think the Democrats still haven't absorbed the full lessons of what this election was all about and, and why it was that they lost. And that's because a lot of the positions that Trump took, even if he took them in the least subtle ways possible, appealed to something in the psyches of lots of Americans. And to think that that's going to go away, even if Donald Trump goes away in four years, I think is a little bit dangerous. I, I think that's oh. right. I'm completely right. Absolutely right, David Sanger. Um, <laughs> See, I, I knew that there would, be, there would be one person left on Deep State Radio. It doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot to get Rosa to agree with you. But, All you but, have to do is say things are awful and they're going to get worse. Well, and so Rosa, here's why things are awful and they're going to get worse. And here's why the Democrats uh, are not paying enough attention. Here's why hopes of a Democratic sweeping victory in the midterm elections in 2018 strike me as probably overblown. And again, I, I want to be wrong about all of this. Um, the the reason that this uh, may not be a blip is that the election of Donald Trump 
in some ways was the culmination of years of efforts that most Americans were unaware of and weren't paying attention to. Uh, to do things like rig election districts such that in states like Wisconsin, even though year after year a, a rather substantial majority of voters in the state vote for Democrats, the uh, the state legislature remains consistently controlled by Republicans. You know, if you screw around with voting districts for long enough and you screw around with requirements to actually show up and vote and you make it difficult enough for particularly poor people, minorities, uh, immigrants, uh, including legal immigrants to vote, um, what you start doing is you start systematically disadvantaging one political party. And that's the that set of changes is part of what allowed Trump to win. It is what is allowed even prior to Trump um, right wing dominated state legislatures to exist in many states in the country is what has allowed uh the Congress to remain controlled by Republicans in the Obama era. It's and 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 some of this goes obviously isn't just a recent development. Some of this goes back to the compromises that gave us the U.S. Constitution in the first place, including the compromise that said that every state, no matter how tiny, gets two senators, which systematically advantages. Uh, underpopulated and primarily rural states, which in modern America tend to tilt heavily to the right, uh, which means you know there are all kinds of things which have created a very uneven playing field for Democrats and Republicans. And that is continuing and indeed accelerating under Donald Trump. I mean, I think that the the flaw in the argument, you know, the demographics is destiny argument, which Democrats love, is the argument that says, as, as David Rothkopf suggested, um, well, it's just a bunch of old fogies who voted for Donald Trump and they're going to – you know, these last remaining white guys, they're all dying out. They're going to either die of old age or they're going to be replaced by immigrants and so demography is destiny and soon there won't be a Republican Party because it increasingly relies on this small group of white guys um, and we ain't going to have no white guys anymore. Um, the problem with that is that the you know the last remaining white guys are doing their darndest to make sure that there will still be white guys and that they will have disproportionate power. And I don't mean to be unkind to you white guys. I like you white guys. Um, I'm all in favor of of having some white guys around. Um, um, but but nonetheless, I mean that that th this is the terrain on which the battle is being staged. It is the terrain of things like demographics. Uh, it is the terrain of voting rights. It's the terrain of restrictions on immigration uh, and and restrictions on the ability of people to exercise the vote. You know, so there's nothing inevitable about those demographic shifts leading to a shift in political power in this country and cr making sure that Trump is a blip. That's what the fight is currently about. The fight is currently over gerrymandering. The fight is currently over immigration. Uh, and and if the Trump administration with cooperation from the still Republican-dominated Congress continues to do what it's been doing, packing the courts with some of the least qualified judicial nominees we have seen in quite some time, et cetera, uh, this will be ir irreversible, that we, we, are no, we are not a democracy in any meaningful sense already, and we will become less and less of one as time goes on. Well, wow, that is definitely, I mean, you may retire the heavy thorny crown of entropy permanently with that, but let's set aside for a moment the political analysis, which is depressing if you if you buy into Rose's analysis. And I have to say, I don't know that I do. I, I do think demography is destiny. I do think things are changing. I do think this election will produce a major change. And I do think this will see be seen as a blip. And I do think Trump is a manifestation of a third of the population or 30 percent, not the whole thing. Uh, there there are institutional problems that need to be corrected. But I, I, I don't know that I see this as um, uh, quite, quite as, as grim and irreversible, um, a disease as, as, as Rosa does, but we're supposed to be a foreign policy, um, conversation. Another of the things that is notable about 2017 is that when we had our, you know, first podcast conversations in 2017, uh, not everybody actually had a podcast. And by the end of the year, everybody had a podcast. So, 
<laughs> my mother doesn't have a podcast yet, well, but she will. Give her, give her a week she or two. Give her, give her, She's give her some broad. time. She deserves yeah. to have her own podcast. But my dog's going to start hers in just a few weeks. So. <laughs> yes, dog casts are for sure coming, uh, and cat casts will do better than dog casts because they do so much better on the videos. But in any event, on the foreign policy side, when I read these articles like. Uh, the Richard Haas article in The Atlantic or Evan Osnos's article, both of them are smart guys and analyzing this kind of thing. It's also like, oh, my God, we uh, America has a bad foreign policy for the first time. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I think, w- wait, wait a minute. Barack Obama was lousy at foreign policy. And come to think of it, George W. Bush invaded Iraq. And, you know, Bill Clinton fumbled around for a bunch of years and let Rwanda happen. And and then I'm thinking, you know, Casey Stengel, Corey, wrote <laughs> an autobiography <laughs> called Can't Anybody Here Play This Game? <laughs> uh, he was talking about the New York Mets, who were terrible. But I, I've been sort of thinking about this, and I'm thinking, can't you know, as far as foreign policy goes in the United States, can't anybody here play this game? We are just not very good at it. Trump's terrible. He's the worst. We're going to give him a medal. But Obama was lousy. Bush was lousy. Clinton was fumbling around. George H.W. Bush, pretty good. But before so that, the moral of this story is to drop to your knees in prayerful gratitude this January of 2018 that our bumbling country has such a wide margin for error that it can afford to make as many mistakes as we make. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely true. And I think part of that comes from maybe letting businessmen stay businessmen and do and businesswomen and do business and the country prospers uh, and not have them think they can also do government. But, but well, D- David, your greatest sign for hope here is that Casey Stengel said that in 1962 <laughs> or 1963, and the Mets actually won the World Series in 1969, although he was no longer manager, okay? So uh, so that does suggest that there is possibility for recovery here. But that's why I think... Excellent, that, David. Okay, but I, well, listen, if you're going to go off and name, you know, every obscure American president from the 18th century, then we can do at least a little bit of baseball history for you. I will know. It's it's really hard to resist the temptation to make references now to Casey at the bat, and the lack of joy in Mudville here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but you know that that does raise. So David, your your point is we had a lot of presidents who made a lot of huge foreign policy mistakes, and that's absolutely correct. But I think the difference about uh, Trump goes back to my use of the phrase and Haas's use of the phrase, Richard Haas's use of the phrase, abdication. That's what's different. So they the the mistakes that were done in the Iraq war and so forth were usually mistakes of um, American commission by stretching us beyond our um, ability to maintain uh, a presence around the world. And Iraq and Afghanistan are sort of number one there. Um, what you saw in the Obama administration was a pulling back from those kind of conflicts and a caution about getting into others. And what you've seen in the Trump administration is something even more. It has been saying it has been a declaration that all of these international arrangements that we've had since you know World War II forward actually don't play in our interest, so we're just going to pick up our marbles and leave. It's been notable for its absence of constructive replacements for these things. And that's a that's an error of a very different kind. Take away all the bombast and all that. That's an error of a different kind than the type that we've discussed here with, with more recent presidents. Corey, I just want to give you the opportunity, and by the way, you can direct this to the people mm-hmm. who do the Pod Save the World and Pod Save America broadcast, which on a weekly basis tell us how great Obama was. Um, but isn't it possible to construe that Trump is actually the natural continuation of the Obama abdication? Yeah, you can make a reasonable argument of that, namely that uh, that the demands of 
the Bush administration's post 9-11 strategy were inconsistent with what Americans thought it was worth to achieve those aims. And then as the pendulum swings, we elect a president who overtly wants to write off the Iraq war and who goes through a couple of rounds of Afghan strategy review, trying to browbeat the military into giving him the answer that he wants without him having to tell him what the answer is. Um, and, and that Trump is a continuation of that reticence, that ebbing, uh, flowing away from the, the outposts of that strategy that had been established. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that, uh, but there are important differences. President Obama, for you know how tiresomely he scolded us all about quite a number of subjects, he was actually a believer in the international order, a believer in laws, norms, institutions, uh, working in cooperation with other countries, and I do think those are under threat by President Trump in a way they haven't been in the last 70 years. So I think there's an argument to make of continuity. And it's so delicious to make that argument to advocates of President Obama's foreign policy because they are horrified at the thought that Trump is a continuation. But I do also think there are some important differences. Well, and, and I think that's a, a, a fair an analysis. But Rosa, as we look back judicious on the past... Judicious is the word you were looking for, David. Ju yeah, well, accurate. <laughs> judicious, accurate, wise, insightful. But, but, but Rosa, as we look back at this, this, this generation, this 20-year period of U.S. foreign policy, it's certainly going to rival the period from 1920 to 1940 as the worst since America actually started having a foreign policy, don't you think? <laughs> I'm going to leave that, that determination to Corey. Um, but I did. I wanted to come back. I, I, David, I know you want us to talk about foreign policy, but I want to say one more thing about domestic U.S. politics, but informed by a comparative look at other countries. So it's kind of like foreign stuff, right? Um, you know, part of the reason that I'm I'm not as optimistic as the rest of you is I've spent a fair amount of years in my academic life studying societies that really, really go off the rails in particularly horrific ways like, you know, Nazi Germany and, you know, the Rwandan genocide and the Cambodian genocide and the former Yugoslavia and uh, similar similar situations. And, and the thing that is most striking when you look at the uh, phenomena of seemingly kind of normal societies that may be screwed up in some ways, but that then sort of seem to rapidly and inexplicably become utterly cannibalistic to the point where they're, you know, slaughtering, torturing, et cetera, large segments of their own population is how fast it happens and how how impossible it seems to everyone until it happens. And then it seems inevitable and it happens very, very, very quickly. Um, so so I – part of, part of the reason I think you can never be too paranoid um, is that we, we know from looking at many, many other countries that things can – it is not always the case that things self-correct and that in every one of the cases that I mentioned – the majority of the intellectuals, the people like us, God help us, right, were sitting around right up to the point that somebody was outside their house with a machete saying, this is going to self-correct. This is a blip. You know, it can't happen here, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that that is what people say uh, up to the very moment that their society, their society teeters over into apocalyptic violence. Um, so on that cheery note, uh, we, uh, I'll give the floor to somebody else. <laughs> wow. Probably Corey this, should say something this, now. <laughs> this, this episode this episode is going to have to come up with like a warning. Like, don't start yeah. your year. Don't start your year with this. I do think one difference that may exist between this and all those other analogies is none of those countries were the richest and most powerful nation in the world at the peak of their riches and power as the United States is right now. Which, uh, and which David feeds right to the abdication issue because there's no reason we have to be doing any of this. We right. could be renegotiating NAFTA from a position of power. We could be dealing with the Iran nuclear deal from a position of power. 
we could be staying within TPP and using that power and then using that leverage against the Chinese. We were actually, for all that you hear about, you know, American carnage, which is what the word that was used in the in the uh, inaugural address uh, nearly a year ago, we're actually at the peak of our economic and military power. It's going to be looked back on as as the great days. And so the question is, why walk away from that? Well, I think that's a I think that's a a good point. Now, I, honestly, my my own view is that we won't walk away from it, and that the next president will correct a lot of this. Although it's going to take some time. Um, we've got about- said by a man who was who was sitting just miles from where Woodrow Wilson designed a great American strategy. Well, we've we've survived a lot of mistakes. I think that should give us some optimism. But in any event, um, let's, uh, we've got three minutes left. And what I'd like to do is Donald Trump is a manifestation of um, sort of national narcissism, probably the most extreme manifestation of it that I can think of. Um, I'd like to just pose one last question about 2017 and give you each a minute to just do a stream of consciousness off of it. And that is, all of us in the United States have spent 2017, for the most part, talking about Donald Trump from one perspective or another. Tell me the stories that have happened elsewhere in the world that we probably should have been paying closer attention to, because they're going to be bigger stories in 2018. And let's start with you, Corey. Uh, The continued demise of poverty... Um, and and the continued rise of living standards and particularly health standards around the world. This is such a slow burn, gets lots overlooked, but in fact, so many of the problems that we experience internationally get solved by increased prosperity. Um, not just the beauty of expanding human potential, but also practical stuff, like people find more energy-saving appliances and all that good stuff. Um, so, so one story that I think gets dramatically undercovered, I realize this doesn't exactly fit your category, so I promise I'll move on fast, David, <laughs> is that the uh, other stories, uh, Trump messing around with... Uh, with the Iran nuclear agreement, because we're going to miss it when it's gone. And and I think Congress uh, just ignored the president's uh, refusal to certify, but I think that's going to come back and bite us. Uh, South Korea's willingness to negotiate with North Korea on terms we might not uh, want, I think, I think in the last two months, I've started to see inklings of that, and that'll be a big story. Uh, other stories we haven't covered enough, how much of a disaster NAFTA collapsing will be for the American economy uh, and the effects that will have on immigration, legal and illegal, uh, the possible end of H-1B visas. I promise I'll stop right there because I can see I'm getting into that mode of that Thanksgiving of my childhood where I started, somebody asked me what I was thankful for and my mom had to cut me off after about 15 minutes. So I'll cut myself (laughs) off right there. Oh my gosh, Corey, that's so endearing. Rosa, um, (laughs) I'm sure yours is not going to be that endearing. No, no. Uh, no, I was I, I don't I don't know that I could pinpoint one thing, but I, I do think that we have the, the degree to which U.S. relations with Turkey have also gone off the rails and the internal politics in Turkey, uh, I think, is one of the issues that we haven't talked about nearly as much as we should because we were so distracted by Donald Trump. Uh, the impact of that on on the future of the NATO alliance, the impact of that on events in Syria uh, and elsewhere, uh, that's a big one. Another big one, I think, uh, the increasing tensions, uh, you know, the, the Saudi-Yemeni conflict, the increasing tensions uh, with Iran in the region, uh, you know, that all of these things, I think, have been relatively eclipsed by our own uh, sort of navel-gazing fascination with our president. Yeah, by the way, I didn't mean to be unfair because regular listeners to Deep State Radio will know that by far the most heartwarming, heartbreaking story that we had in the first year of Deep State Radio 
was Rosa giving all of the change that she'd saved up as a child to a little boy in elementary school. Little girl, so that he would, Katrina. Little girl, so that she would be his fr- her friend. Um, yeah, and that, that just goes I've, to show you. <laughs> yeah, I've never quite gotten over that, actually. Um, that's why I'm here in the woods. And honestly. that's why I grew up to think about genocide. And yeah. Corey, Corey, people were paying Corey to be their friends, and she grew up to be an optimist. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's very, very sad. Oh, I think I'm going to um, cry. D- David, last— But if anybody seconds. wants to send me money, it's not too yeah. late. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. No, I—, I I, I would definitely pay for Corey and Rosa to be my friend. There's no question about that. So, um, stories, uh, stories that we missed uh, thinking about enough this year. Um, probably the most important political speech of the year was nothing said by Donald Trump. I think it was Xi Jinping's um, mm. three hours plus to the party congress where he laid out a goal in which China would become the most powerful military and economic force by uh, 2049, the 100th anniversary of uh, the Chinese uh, revolution, not quite as far away uh, as we uh, might might think right now. Um, and uh, the implications of that, even if he's wrong, and the kind of decisions that it should guide about how we think about the development of our own economy, our own military, our own intelligence capabilities, I think are huge. Um, The Iran-Saudi conflict, which I don't think is going to break out into an outright war, but what could be the long-running war, the next long-running war of the Middle East, with huge implications. You've already seen some of that, uh, of course, in um, uh, Yemen. You've already seen some of that elsewhere in the region. So I think that's a biggie. Uh, I agree that um, the split between President Moon and uh, President Trump uh, in, uh, in over South Korea's approach to North Korea, which we've just seen in his New Year's speech, um, Kim Jong-un uh, is trying to exploit. Uh, I think that's going to be a very, very big uh, running story. And while we're on North Korea, the fundamental question of whether Donald Trump is truly not going to tolerate a nuclear-capable North Korea that can reach any city in the United States, a status that if they don't have now, they will you know, certainly have imminently, uh, or whether he's going to do what every other American president has done, which is uh, live with it while denying that he's living with it, uh, I think will be one of the defining questions of this year. Fantastic. Well, that's a great way to start the year. And we wish everybody who's listening to Deep State Radio a Happy New Year. And we will be here at least twice a week, every week, giving you uh, these kinds of insights with the usual gang and guests on a regular basis. I noticed that some of you have already begun to receive the Deep State swag that we've been sending out in the form of mugs uh, with some of the slogans that you guys have come up with on them. (laughs) We welcome you to continue proposing such slogans, and the good ones will always get mugs. Uh, And if you want to know what the latest is, you know, follow Deep Deep State Swag on Twitter. Um, And join us again for the next episode this week when we look ahead and this group of incomparable savants makes the predictions for 2018 that you're going to need to have in your pocket uh, to plan uh, the year and uh, uh, all your investment portfolio decisions. Um, So thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. And everybody, join us again real soon here at Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.